Welcome to the future of education. And now, here's your host, Michael Horn. Welcome to the show where we are dedicated to building a world in which all individuals can build their passions, fulfill their potential, and live a life of purpose. And to help us think through that today, our guest is Matt Siegelman. He's the president of the Burning Glass Institute, a nonprofit that mines for data-driven insights around the future of work and pathways into the job market, and then works with educators, employers, and policymakers to help build those better pathways to advance opportunity for more people. That's my language. I'll, I'll let Matt give a crack at it in a moment in his. But before the Burning Glass Institute, he was the uh, CEO of MZ Burning Glass for nearly two decades, which is now known as Lightcast, where he's still the chair of that board. And he really helped pioneer this notion of data-driven labor market insights. So Matt, welcome to the Future of Education. It's great to see you. We've been threatening to do this for a while. I'm glad we're finally getting to do it. Well, very much likewise, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. So four parts of the show. We're going to start with our morning warm-up, go into work time, a specials, and closing time. And uh, in our morning warm-up, sort of our lightning round, if you will, I, I, I want folks to get to know you and your work better because you and I anticipate doing this on a more regular basis. So first, give, just give us a little bit more about the fundamental work that the Burning Glass Institute does and, and, and your raison d'etre, right? Why do you exist? So the Burning Glass Institute is a fully independent nonprofit that, uh, that advances data-driven research and experimentation at the intersection of the future of work and the future of learning. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, I spent most of my career building, um, what's today Lightcast, terribly proud of, of its breakthrough innovation of, of bringing really, um, robust and granular and timely data to understanding the supply and demand of, of skills in the market today. Um, the Burning Glass Institute, um, builds on novel data sources like Lightcast and a number of others. Um, to be able to answer the question of how do we take these kinds of data sets and drive fundamental transformation? Uh, we know that the, the, world that uh, the, the, the world of work that we live in is one that still is rife with um, inefficiencies, with inequities. Um, and the question is, um, how do we bridge those gaps? Um, so, you know, we've been doing a ton of work recently, um, for example, looking at worker mobility um, this past fall together with um, support of the, the Schultz Family Foundation and in partnership with Joe Fuller at Harvard Business School, uh, we released what we call their American Opportunity Index, um, which is our first foray into saying, hey, look, how do we um, evaluate worker outcomes in a truly quantitative way? Um, how do we, in, in specifically what that was doing was, was measuring the Fortune 250 based upon um, the level of opportunity that they create for workers. You know, at a broader level, though, what we were doing was creating a methodology for evaluating mobility. Um, and it's something that we've more recently been applying to understanding um, uh, the trajectories of learners after they complete programs of study. Um, as you know, you know, there's there's a lot of work that's out there trying to figure out how do we make sure everyone completes a degree 
Um, but how do we make sure that that degree actually bears out uh, over time? And, and so some of those same metrics that we use in the opportunity index to study worker mobility um, are proving to be terribly relevant in uh, measuring learner mobility as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just fascinating the amount of work that you're doing in these areas and focusing on the real question, which is the ultimate value, not just did we, yes. print, a, did we print a card that says you graduated, which is the easy part, I like to think. You did a bunch of reports recently that I, I think ranked schools in an incredibly novel way, at least as far as I can tell. You basically looked at the careers themselves and asked which undergrad institutions were the best at, at not just placing students in those careers, but, but helping them earn high salaries in those careers. I think the areas were data science, consulting, law, finance. I'd love to know more about the, the research and the methodology behind that. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is something that we undertook together with the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'd first just point out, I don't believe that the world necessarily needs more college rankings. Um, but I do believe that uh, learners deserve um, transparency into uh, how, um, again, into the kind of outcomes they can expect. Uh, not every student going into school uh, knows what she wants to do on the other side. I certainly didn't. Um, but for those who do have an ambition, um, and I think that's increasingly important given the very high cost and, uh, of college and the debt that, that students find themselves saddled with, how do you know um, which schools are going to place you furthest toward that ambition? So here's what we did and why this looks um, pretty different from things like the college scorecard or the like. Um, college scorecard says, okay, in a given major, uh, for those not familiar with it, this is um, the U.S. Department of Education's um, uh, effort to, and I think a very important effort to say, okay, what are the, uh, what are the, the earnings of, of graduates in the first few years after graduation? Um, it's limited to a few years. Um, and it's really about looking at, um, you know, it's about looking at majors and just saying, okay, where, where do people wind up? And so you wind up with a lot of this kind of calculus of, okay, well, um, if somebody goes on to become a social worker, um, not earning terribly much, but very well fulfilled, is, is, that, a, um, is that a poor outcome, right? But mm -hmm. instead, what we looked at this from the other direction, we said, okay, if you want to become ultimately a software engineer, if you want to become a data scientist, if you want to become a management consultant, um, if you want to be, go into marketing, what are the schools that have been most successful at placing people into um, top paying roles within that, um, that career? And so we're looking both at the share of, of graduates from a given institution who go into that field um, and then um, specific to the ranking itself, of those at the school who go into the field, what percentage of them are in, um, in top paying roles? And some of the kind of results are, are pretty surprising, um, right? So if you looked at the, the software engineering uh, rankings, uh, you know, and, and, and again, you can see this in the Wall Street Journal, and I think they've got, they're putting it all together. They did it, they launched it list by list, but I think- Yeah, it's quite clever, the PR they, rollout. They, actually, next frankly. week, I think they're then gonna kind of take the second bite of the apple and, and launch a print feature, I think. Um, but so um, stay tuned, uh, um, I'll, 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 um, I'll do my job and, 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 and do a little bit of advertising here. But uh, one of the things that you would find if you look at the software engineering ranking 
Um, look, there's a bunch of schools in there that, you know, look, it is no surprise that MIT and Caltech and Stanford and, and you know, are, are, are top at, at sending or some of the top schools, I don't remember the exact order, at sending kids on to, to software uh, software careers and, and that pay well over a span of 10 years. Um, but uh, we found a number of small liberal arts schools. Um, even ones that don't have engineering programs, I'm pretty sure don't have computer science departments, um, schools like Mount Holyoke, um, which um, do very well. And I think it speaks both to the nature of software development and how it's changing and probably will change even more in, a, in an era of generative AI, but it also speaks to um, what's the broader set of tools that somebody needs in order to be successful in a career. Super interesting, because I think what you're starting to show is uh, I, I know you've done a lot of research on the importance of major and where it helps and so forth. We'll get to that actually maybe toward the end a little bit. But uh, I will note that major is not always predictive of what you all, what you want to do. And so I think you're starting to point to the nature of this diffuse set of skills that go beyond the narrow technical skill, but also the social capital that accrues in a lot of these places and giving guidance. I, I, I suspect as we move into the work time, everyone's going to want to know a few of the top uh, performers at these rankings. So can you just uh, tease a little bit in, in different disciplines? Because what's interesting, again, just to say this, like you did law, for example, mm -hmm. but this isn't the top law schools. It's the it's top, the top undergrads that send students. So on. interesting. You yeah. know, um, so first of all, by the way, one thing I should point out is um, how much it matters. Um, so, and, and again, I, I don't have the rankings in front of me right now, but, um, if I'm remembering correctly, the top earning, uh, the schools that had the most students graduate and ultimately go on to top paying law careers, um, their students were making, um, about $50,000 a year more than graduates of media, of median, um, performing schools who went into the law. Um, so you put that across a 30 year career, right? That's a one and a half million dollar difference in pay. Um, you know, one of the things that was really interesting in um, law, as an example, uh, is that um, there was uh, so, you know, again, um, no, no surprise that, that going to Harvard is 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 a great choice. Um, I think, you know, we found was that, um, first of all, there's very often a geographic effect in fields like the law, um, certainly in marketing, um, being, you know, some of the best paying jobs today are in tech, um, or at least were until recent layoffs. And, um, and, and tech is sort of this black hole that's swallowing a lot of talent, a lot of graduates. Um, and so, Cal, you know, being in California, for example, um, a, you know, a, a big leg up if you're going into finance, being around New York um, has a lot of the same kind of ecosystem effects. Some of um, uh, um, uh, Baruch, for example, one of the, the CUNY schools, uh, which is, you know, a, a part of the city, city university system of New York, right? It's, it's, you know, not a one of the most selective schools out there. And yet. Um, was far better performing in terms of the, what we call the school effect, the wage effect of associated with going to school um, than many other schools that are considered far more elite. Um, and I think it reflects the fact that, okay, well, if you're at Baruch, 
you're going to wind up doing an internship in in the finance industry in New York on Wall Street, and um, you're going to be very well positioned. Um, one other thing which which uh, I found striking is this, and and this was disappointing. Um, we found that for the most part, when we looked at sort of the best the 20 performers overall in each field, very few of them were public. Um, so much so that when we, we turned the list over to Wall Street Journal, we said, hey, look, we're giving you both the sort of a, we're actually split this into a, a private list and a public list because otherwise um, you actually don't wind up seeing more than Berkeley or one or two others in, in most lists. Um, and I think that speaks to, um, you know, both some of the continued um, equity challenges that we have in our, our higher education system. It also speaks to um, the problems of getting lost in scale. Hmm. Um, if you're at a, um, and you're talking about the methodology, I'm hoping I'm not getting too far into the weeds here, right? But if you're, if you're in a really big school, they may be delivering lots of people into great careers, but there's only so many jobs at Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to finance, um, there's only so many jobs at Cravath if you're going to the law. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, there's just a lot of graduates from, from University of Michigan um, or wherever it may be. Um, yeah. And so uh, part of what we saw there was also, um, you know, kind of where you have the best chance of, of being, of getting seen. It's super interesting because in essence, you're saying if Mount Holyoke, small class, right, sends X number into computer science, software, engineering jobs, whatever it might be, you know, they're all doing pretty well, maybe, right? 100% of them are hitting it out of the park. Michigan may send a bunch of kids to those jobs that do even better, but they're also sending a bunch who are maybe going into that career pathway and not doing it as well. So the law of averages sort of hurts them in, the, in these sorts of rankings. I think there's also a, a social capital um, question here as well, right? So again, if you're in just that great big melting pot, um, harder to get the signals, harder to get the help um, and to get the concentrated attention. I think there's also a, um, what, a, what um, you know, economists would call a positive selection effect, um, right? So most Mount Holyoke grads don't go into software engineering. Um, the ones who do, one has to imagine, really are, um, are, are special people and, and who are really determined to be successful in that field. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so that, that may also explain some of the difference. That's really interesting. So the Wall Street Journal, obviously, when it came out, they publicized who got on top of the rankings. Those were the headlines for the private and public institutions. But I'm sort of curious about the flip side of it, the institutions that maybe fail to make the grade, if you will. And maybe the way to ask this is more like, what insights could I harvest from this if I'm a prospective student to avoid making a mistake if I'm set on a particular career path? So, um, you know, look, in terms of the, um, um, you know, this body of research, we, we didn't do tons to mine the bottom of the list, I think. Um, and, and that's partly practical because there's a lot of schools that under- Right, you could go down rankings. forever. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is a, um, and, and this is something which with Jeff Selingo and I recently looked at, you, you mentioned that paper and, and I think probably worth bringing to bear here. You know, the, um, the success of graduates is 
defined at a three-way intersection between um, the, the program of study, your major, the school you go to, and the skills you acquire. Um, so there is a big difference in any program of study between, uh, between whether you're at a highly selective institution um, or a non-selective institution. Um, there's also a big difference between what program of study you're in. Um, you know, look, um, let's, let's, let's call out what, what I think we all intuitively know, um, but which was, I think, you know, a really remarkable finding, you know, just to, to see nonetheless, um, when we looked at, at that sort of intersection of programs of study and institutional selectivity, um, you would rather be a, um, a, a tech or engineering major at a totally non-selective institution, you know, at a regional public or, or four-year community college or what have you, um, than be pretty much any other major at the most selective institutions. Um, and so I think that, that sort of speaks to some of the decision landscape that people um, have to make. Um, one of the you know, we, we tend to focus on, on rankings at the institutional level. Um, and we focus not enough at the program of study level. And again, some of that's natural because people don't necessarily know what they want to do. Um, and there, you know, there's this idol that we have of college as this, um, you know, kind of wonderful sorting hat, um, if, uh, if you will, where, you know, we kind of come out knowing what we want to do. Um, it's a very expensive sorting hat. Um, and the stakes are very high. And so if you don't know where you want to go, what you want to do, um, it's, um, you can wind up making some serious mistakes. Now it's interesting because this often gets cast as a debate between, um, the STEM fields and the humanities. Um, mm -hmm. and indeed there's been a significant flight out of uh, out of the humanities. Yeah, numbers have declined dramatically. It's yeah. been a huge decline. Um, um, but uh, actually where we see the biggest levels of um, underperformance are for the most part, um, less the humanities, though certainly most STEM fields um, outperform most uh, liberal arts fields. Um, not always, by the way. Um, if you're going to be a life science major and not go into graduate school, um, that's a mistake. Um, uh, but, um, you know, what kind of job do you get as a bio major who doesn't go to get a, a nursing degree or, or, or a medical degree, um, or a PhD or something like that. But, but most of the, the worst offenders are the kinds of programs that sound nominally practical, mm. but which, um, you know, which actually have either low demand or, Le very little of the demand is is for jobs that demand a degree, um, you know, and it seems intuitively on, uh, obvious to most of the people who are listening to us, I'm sure, that, um, you know, mamas don't let your babies go become parks and rec majors or um, become transportation and material moving majors or law enforcement majors or, or the like. If you're first gen college goers, yeah, no. you know, there's nobody to tell you that. Yeah. Um, and so we've actually seen a huge growth in those majors. If you look at, at enrollments and com rather conferrals over the last 50 years, where are people getting degrees? Um, STEM has been relatively constant. Um, there's been a huge flight out of liberal arts. What's grown in the gap is those nominally practical majors that very often underperform. 
It's interesting because you, you anticipated where I wanted to go, which as we move it in the special section is enlarging this with that research you did with Jeff. And, and you've just sort of alluded to it, right? That there's these bachelor's degree pathways that don't actually pay off uh, in, in the same way that the bachelor's degree does on average. And, and I guess what was interesting to me was first, the first part of what you just said is that these technical sounding, very vocation clear, right? Pathways that don't pay off should avoid those. If you're paying a lot, I guess, and the sticker price is, is the lesson, but then you also found that there's certain pathways that are non-degreed in nature that actually pay off better than some of those bachelor degree pathways you just mentioned. So what were some of those non-degree pathways that maybe people ought to be thinking about or considering? So I, I will break this down into two parts. One is um, the non-degree pathways, um, but part of it is also kind of how do we, how do we create a more hybridized uh, version of that? Mm. And what are the, I mentioned there's a sort of three-way intersection here between programs of study and um and and institutions but um the third leg of that stool is um is skills you acquire uh and what we found was that um in any given program of study there are sets of skills that you can learn that significantly um differentiate students that significantly change your prospects of, of success um you know a uh, a public administration major who is able to learn uh, public investment skills is making almost a quarter more um, than other public administration majors. Wow. Um, remember I was telling you about how there's a lot of uh, life science majors who um, who underperform um, uh, certainly other STEM majors and, and in many cases, many humanities or, or social science majors. Well, a life science major who develops clinical research experience is making 60% more than other um, life than other life science majors, right? So, so it's really about not necessarily the baby with the bathwater. It's also for learners. It's not about, oops, I made this terrible mistake and now I'm doomed. But it's how do we make sure that that learners have the information they need to know what they can do to make sure that they're um, maxing out their chances of success. Hmm. So that. That goes where I want to go, which is sort of the implications for this body of work. And I'm going to call it that because it's obviously a lots of little strands that uh, are significant each and to their own, but then together start to paint a very interesting picture about the landscape of pathways into the work and so forth. And so I'm, I'm just sort of curious at a macro level, what are things that we ought to be doing in your judgment to help empower learners to, to make investments and choices and I'm going to phrase it this way, in, in line with the progress that they're seeking. And, and, and what are we learning about, like, how to help them discern what is and isn't a good investment along that path that they've chosen? So there's a couple of things that we've been um, working on here. First, I think, is just um, providing the insight about how different skills work. And different skills work in different ways, right? So some skills are um, are important because they're core to a discipline. Um, some skills are are foundational. They aren't actually the skills of that of that job, but they you kind of need to know them. Um, and we often forget those. So, for example, if you want to be a graphic designer, um, you know, uh, graphic designers are doing project based work, and so they often need project management skills. They often need 
uh, budgeting skills, but no one teaches you that as a graphic designer in graphic design school. Um, but at the same time, there's sets of skills that are foundation that are um, transformational to a role um, that are um, fast growing within it that drive significant premiums. And you know, how do we how do we identify those as well? So that's the first thing I'd say there. Uh, we recently um, worked with Coursera to develop um, a a framework to help both companies and learners um, make better optimized decisions about what skills to learn. Now, optimize is a funny kind of wonky sounding word, um, right? You're just thinking hey, how to make better decisions. But but I, I think the optimization thing is, which implies a set of choices around different priorities is really important to it. Because, you know, we looked at three dimensions, which sound really easy. And by the way, like, like huge loss of blood and whatever associated with producing them. But um, right. One is how much of an earnings boost does a skill give you? How much value does it give you in the market? A second is how do you, um, how long does it take to learn? And third is how long does it last? How durable is that skill? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I remember first sharing it with some folks and, and they're saying, okay, great. What are those skills? What do you mean? What skills? Well, you know, the skills that are, really quick to learn that last a long time and give you this huge uh, lift in your career. And it's like, guys, there's no free lunch. Um, there's precisely zero skills that match all of those criteria, right? But how do you decide which ones are worth the slog, which ones give you the quick hit? Um, those are decision spaces that you want to help people sort of make. And so part of it is this, how do we then, and I think this is where you're, you're getting to, um, you know, uh, um, it, it's a question of how do we um, create the the structures and the transparency, structures of how people can acquire these skills um, on the fly, because the once and done model, is, as I know you agreed, no longer works um, in, you know, we uh, did some work last year together with the Boston Consulting Group. We found that the average U.S. job seen 37 percent of its skills replaced in the last five years, which means like an astounding pace wow. of change, yeah. right? Like I think it was the average curriculum changed 37% in the last five years. Well, like, of course, yeah. not. Accredit accreditors won't allow it, um, right? So in that kind of context, everyone needs to acquire new skills. Um, how, do we, how do we construct a mechanism for people to be able to do that? Um, similarly, um, how do we be able to enable, how do we enable people to stair-step their way toward um, economic mobility. Mm -hmm. um, most people don't leave Tulsa buildings in a single bound, right? And go, you know, like there's wonderful programs. Yeah, atomic there. habits, right? To, to, <laughs> to do one thing and then build, yeah. Exactly, um, right? So um, so the, 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 I think there's, um, we need to rethink our community college system um, because it is the natural infrastructure for people to be able to learn um, new, skills on the fly, but right now it's very oriented toward degree transfer, which so often doesn't work. Um, right. Something like 80% of uh, enrollments in community colleges um, are around people expecting to get a four-year degree and according to the National Student Clearinghouse, only about 13% ever do. Um, but this is also about how do we, I mentioned, you know, how do we give people transparency? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Michael, this is why I'm so proud of the work that that we're just kicking off together yeah. um, uh, around short-term credential uh, transparency. 
Yeah. Do you want to have a skill-driven ecosystem, one where people that life science major could acquire that additional skill of clinical research uh, experience and learn earn 60% more? We have to have um, a way of representing skills that has real currency as a marketplace. Um, and so you hear a lot of voices talking about how, hey, we need more short-term credentials. Actually, that's that's exactly not the problem, exactly the opposite problem from what we have. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Credential Engine Project tracks something like 1.2 million credentials. I always point out that there are 114,000 words in the Oxford Dictionary. Um, so it's literally 10 times more credentials than there are there words. There are words to describe them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't need more of them. We need more clarity about which ones actually deliver outcomes. Um, and so... Um, you know, we're at the Burning Glass Institute recently uh, announced a partnership together with Jobs of the Future um, to build on the work of uh, the EQUOS, um, the Education Quality Outcome Standards Framework. Um, people say, how could we do this at scale? Mm -hmm. How could we provide an evaluation of which credentials are actually bearing out for learners um, so that Learners know which ones to invest in so that employers know which ones to value um, and which ones represent the skills that they need. Yeah. And Matt, I, I think that's a perfect place to leave this conversation. I'll just, I'll just add my appreciation, not just for the work that we're about to do with EQUOS and, and you know, JFF and Burning Glass Institute coming together on that, but more importantly, also the nuance that you just use to describe even those skills, right? Because what they stack on top of the experience, the program, the degree that you have makes a pretty big difference to answer how valuable is it in the labor market. And that that level of nuance, I think, is important. You, you know, just learning Python is going to have vastly different impacts on your career, depending on what background you bring into it at that point. And so your your answer to the person that says, well, where's the short term, durable, you know, magical uh, 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 skill it depends, right, on context. And that level of nuance, I think, that you all continue to craft in this is incredibly important. So we're going to come back to you as you keep releasing these reports and and, and breaking these insights. Because I, I, my hope is that it'll give people a clearer and clearer picture over time of of this future of work and the and the different pathways, the winding pathways, if you will, into it. Well, um you know, always welcome these conversations. And, and um, you know, I think there's, we, we need to do so much better than we're doing right now. Um, and it's, it's a, there's a moment of opportunity when we see the kind of transformations that are taking place in the market, 37% of, of skills replaced in five years. We see the advent of generative AI. Um, I think it's going to create an impetus for change at a policy level. It's going to create a demand for change, both from learners um, and from employers at the other end. And um, that makes this an exciting moment. No doubt. So we'll keep tracking it with you. Thanks for joining us in the future of education. All you tuning in, keep track of Matt, Burning Glass in, uh, Institute and all the insights that they're publishing. And we'll be back next time. We'll see Thanks you so soon. much.